All right, as we come to 1 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 1, 13 through 16. And today, the scope of Peter's pen changes directions. It's been focused solely on the Lord and His work, God's work for man for the first 12 verses. And now Peter's pen makes a change of direction and he points his pen straight at his audience. And he uses this word, therefore. So as we jump in, I, I want to tell you guys a quick story that I, I, I think relates to this idea of hope leads to holiness or conduct. The way that, that truth stirs up our minds for our hearts to be full of hope, it then causes us to live in a certain kind of way. And when I was 11, my dad took me and my older brother on a... Uh, father-son camping trip. It was us and like five other dad and sons. And we went to Medicine Bow Mountain Range in Wyoming. And uh, this was the first time I'd ever gone any, on any kind of hiking trip like this. And I was nervous from like getting in the van in Kansas City to drive the 12 hours to Medicine Bow Peak. Um, I, hadn't, I don't even know if I'd been in the mountains. Maybe we'd driven through, but I'd never hiked before. And so uh, a couple days into the trip, we decide that we're going to go on this 13-mile hike from one end of Medicine Bow to the other end. And uh, we started out really early in the morning, and we weren't really prepared. I know I wasn't prepared as an 11-year-old physically, mentally, emotionally for this 13-mile hike through the mountains. And we weren't prepared uh, practically either, as you'll find out in the story as I go along. So we started out early that morning, and this was one of the most difficult things I'd ever done. Even thinking about 13 miles put so much stress on my mind and my person to think about how am I going to make it every step of the way. And so every step felt heavier and heavier and heavier. Um, we, about two miles in, I just kind of started stopping about every two minutes. You know, like, I don't know if I can make it. The high altitude was already affecting my breathing. I was stressed out, and I'm like this. I'm the youngest kid on the trip. I'm 11 years old, and everyone's like, come on, Joseph, keep going, keep going. And then we could see the peak, and I'm like, you want me to keep going? That's like 1,500 more feet straight up in the air. And so they're like, come on, Joseph, keep going, keep going. And, you know, there's the, the like, 16-, 17-year-old sons on the trip, and they're literally running up the mountain. And I'm my little 11-year-old self, like, <laughs> like, Barely can walk. I'm like crawling and they're helping me along. But finally, we get to the peak and it's amazing getting to see out from the peak. We brought some sandwiches and some in our, our Bibles with us. And so we set up on the peak of Medicine Bow and we could, you could see all over. You could see down south into the Rockies mountain range. And then you could just see out over the, the vast um, plains of Wyoming. It was amazing, breathtaking. But I still wasn't ready for the rest of the trip because what goes up must come down. And going down isn't necessarily easier. It's just different than going up. If you've been hiking in the mountains, Jesus recently came back from doing a 14, 14er out there in the, in the Rockies. Coming down isn't necessarily easier, but it is different than going up. It takes a different kind of strength and muscle and thinking and all of that. And so... Did I mention that I wasn't ready? I wasn't prepared. 
to go back down the mountain. Neither were we again. We weren't a ready group. And as we kept going, my mood and my actions, the way I started to treat everybody, I started to become a little snappy 11-year-old. Any 11-year-olds in here? What about 10? 10-year-olds? Okay. Any 12-year-olds? 13-year-olds? All right. We got some people around the age that I was on that hiking trip. I was angry. I was unkind. I was probably disrespectful because it was weighing on me, the, the weight of this trip. So on our way back down, we're, we're about an hour into the descent, and we begin to see clouds coming behind us. And within just a, a, a few minutes, a blizzard came. This is July, and we're in the mountains, and a blizzard comes out of nowhere. And so our whole group, hiking in shorts and t-shirts, with little rations, no jackets, a blizzard just comes out of nowhere and engulfs us. It's raining, it's snowing, it's sleeting, the wind is blowing. It gets so dark we can't even see and we're all running down this mountain. And here's little 11-year-old me, scared out of my mind for what's going on. So my dad takes off his t-shirt and he wraps it around my head and he says, keep going, keep going. We finally... Made it back. The storm lasted, I think, for about an hour. At least according to my 11-year-old self, I think it lasted for about an hour. We finally made it back to the other end of the, the hiking trip and where a van was there to pick us up and take us back to the campground. We lit a fire and we sat around with wide eyes warming back up. Since that time, I've, I've taken two more groups back to Medicine Bow. So I was the youngest, and then I've taken now two more trips back there where I've got to lead the hiking trip. And you know what? We were prepared. When I took trips back there, we were ready for anything that was going to come at us. We had water. We had rain jackets and ponchos. We took a GPS with us. We had fire, um, fire building equipment with us. And then I also taught the people that went with us about the mindset needed to endure that 13-mile trek from one end to the other. I told them about the mountain peak and how beautiful it was. I told them about the other end, the rivers and the, or the, the streams and the lakes that we would pass by. And I, I prepared their minds for the action of going from one end of Medicine Bow to the other. And one of the main things that I've taught people along the way is get out of your head. That's one of the most dangerous things when you're hiking is that you get in your own head and you begin to focus on every step that you're trying to take and tunnel vision sets in and your breathing just becomes heavy and you forget everything around you. You can't see the peak. You can't see the end. You can only see what's in front of you. So I often teach people, get out of your head, sing songs, ask people questions, look 200 yards ahead of you and aim for things to go for, to walk toward Because when all thoughts and all focus is on self in your own situation, it's dangerous for the trip. It weighs us down. So as we look into 1 Peter, I want to remind us about the audience of 1 Peter. They were sojourners. They were on a much longer trek than the 13 miles through the mountain range. Peter is writing to these brothers and sisters and he's saying to them, you are on a lifelong journey. You're special strangers, you're sojourners, and you're 
wandering and walking toward an end that you might not know when. But brothers and sisters, you can be sure of what the end is. Grace will be brought to you. The end will be glorious. Hang on till the end. And in the meantime, you need to be ready. You need to be prepared because you can't just go on a journey like this without preparation. You can't just go on a journey like this without living a certain way. Peter's telling them it is worth it. Every step of the way is worth it. Do not give up. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 12, we get to see all that God has done. And now in verse 13, what do you do? To have hope that leads to holiness. To have hope that leads to holiness. We must remember that our situation is sure. If you have a bulletin. On the inside there, I've made an outline and these three points will kind of keep us moving through our verses here. The goal of, of the sermon here is that we would be a holy people. That we would have holy conduct as we wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But that will only happen as we have hope fully set on our situation. So number one, to have hope that leads to holiness, we must remember that our situation is sure. Look at verse 13 with me. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in this text, the first way that we're going to be holy people is that we set our hope fully on our situation. What situation, you might ask? Well, the situation about the end. The situation that we're in is we're special strangers, right? We're sojourning and we're waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're waiting for something. History is waiting for something, right? For 2,000 years since Jesus left, history has been waiting. Christians have been waiting and calling out and proclaiming that the kingdom is coming. We may not know the time when the journey will be over, but we do know the destination. We know that the grace will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to the the 12 verses. I'm just going to sum it up quickly with a little bit of John Piper's help. This is how we would sum that up. He was seeking to build the knowledge trust of his audience in these first 12 verses So that they had no need for doubt. And he says in verse one, because God has chosen you. Verse three, since God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. Verse four, since God is keeping an inheritance for you, imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Verse five, since God is protecting you through faith that you won't lose that so that you won't lose that inheritance. Verses six and seven, since God is refining your faith by fire so that it will receive praise and honor and glory. Verse eight. Since you are swimming with the strokes of love and faith and joy in Christ. Verses 10 through 13. Since prophets and angels are leaning in to see all that God's grace is going to do in your life. Now you set your hope fully on that grace. This is what God has done. This is what we get to do. 
we get to set our hope fully on that grace. What is this grace? The grace is the salvation that's going to be brought to us that was already bought for us. The command here in verse 13 is hope fully or set your hope fully. The command for believers is in light of the revealed truth, set your hope fully on the truth, on the grace This is difficult, though, because in this life, we will have troubles. Jesus said that, right? In this life, you will have troubles and difficulty. But what? Jesus said, I have. I've overcome the world. You will have trouble, but I've overcome the world. David writes in Psalm 34, the afflictions of the righteous are many. But the Lord will deliver them out of them all. We can hope fully. We can invest everything in this hope. It's trustworthy. Do not give up, brothers and sisters. Resolve that you will put all of your eggs in this basket. That Jesus will bring you salvation. Believe, hope, and live in every way that shows that you trust that your situation is secure. That your situation is sure. What can man do to me? As we were preparing for this sermon in our uh, sermon study with the men, Carson had a great illustration. He said uh, about a year ago, him and Sarah needed to get a financial planner advisor to help them with arranging their budget and their money. And the the financial planner was coaching them and saying, as you work with the money that you have and we we work to invest that money or or save it or put it in a secure spot. You got to know that when you're working with money and you put it in something like the stock market, if you keep your eyes on the, the ups and downs of every single day, you're going to have a lot of difficulty in your heart because the stock market is not steady. The stock market is a long-term game from one end to the other end. And if you keep your eyes on that account very often, your heart will sink often. He said, I need to know from the beginning, are you ready to take the, the ride from this point all the way to the end when you're ready to use that money in your retirement? Are you ready? And he warned them because the, the stock market is... Up and down and up and down. He said, if you're going to invest, you have to invest fully because the worst thing that you can do is pull your money out when it gets hard. The worst thing that you can do is to take your money out of that entrustment when you feel like you've lost everything. That's the worst thing that you can do. From personal experience, Abby and I had about $5,200 in our retirement savings in January. And we recently got one of those little readouts of how much retirement you have. You know, it tells you about accruement and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the one that we got recently said, you now have $2,300 in your retirement savings. I was like, wow, good thing I never look at these things. And good thing we don't have that much money in our retirement savings. If that was where our hope is in money, that would be a, a bad thing. But our situation is, sure, you can invest 
everything in the truth that Jesus is coming back for you. He will bring you this salvation. And we learned about that salvation in verses 10 through 12. It says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, and those three verses there tell you all about that, that salvation. It's from God, through the Holy Spirit. It's been looked at by prophets and searched out and studied. And now this salvation has been preached to you. And everyone's longing for it. And it's so sure. And now your job is to put all of your hope into this truth. Now, quickly, in verses 10 through 12, it talks about the grace that was to be yours, um, inquiring the person or time, the spirit of Christ, and then was indicating in this first coming of Christ. We learn about this also in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It says, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has already appeared. When Jesus came, he was the grace of God. He brought salvation for all people. But then Jesus left. And now Peter tells us to wait again for grace. So Jesus already came once and he brought grace. He initiated this salvation and he finished the work on the cross. And then he said, I am coming back and I will bring final grace and final salvation. So he already came once. And he is coming again. That's what Peter is telling his people. He is coming back. Look there in verse 13. It says, set your hope fully on the grace. And then the the words right after that. This week, these words have just been. uh, They've been stewing in my heart and my mind. It says on the grace that will be brought to you. Something that we often teach our kids around the house. We have a a saying. Atticus, are you in here? Can you help me? God always keeps his promises. And we do this little chant at breakfast. Everybody puts their fists up in the air. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Let's try it together, all right? Everybody, right fist in the air. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. All right, so God is making a promise here. Through Peter, he says, the grace will be brought to you. It's sure. Has God ever made a promise that he didn't keep? God will bring this salvation to you. It will be brought. It's sure. It's steady. It will happen. So set your hope fully on the grace because it will be brought to you. When will it be brought to you? It says at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when Jesus comes back and he finishes what he started, everything will be made new. The kingdom will come completely and fully and all the already things that are not yet will be made complete. He will come back. But there's a problem. If you look there in your outline, it says that the problem is that we are often unprepared and intoxicated. So what keeps us from hoping fully in this truth is that we have unready minds that are intoxicated with the things of the world. And so we aren't ready to hope fully. And we only hope half. 
We have minds that are numbed. That's why Peter says, preparing your minds and being sober minded, hope fully, because he's writing to his audience that are not ready and their minds aren't sober. They need to be reminded that you must have a mindset that leads to a heart that will hope. Because if your mind is cloudy, if your mind is scattered, if your mind is unfocused, then you will not have true hope. So Peter says, you must prepare your minds. This idea of preparing your minds, you might have a little one there that points all the way down to the bottom of your Bible. And it says in Greek, girding up the loins of your mind. So we've translated this into English, the meaning of that to be preparing your minds for action. And there was a, a, an Old Testament or a cultural practice. Most everyone wore long robes, men, women. And so when they were going out to work or run or walk or do something besides laying around, they would have to gird up their loins. And I should have brought my robe today so I could have showed you how it works. But it's kind of like a lungi. Uh, they have those uh, all over South Asia. Um, and so you would wear a, a robe and it would go down to your ankles and you would take the back of your robe, you would pull it up between your legs, and then you would tie it into a belt around your waist. And so, uh, what do you call those the girls wear? They have like dress pants. They're like dress and pants. Gauchos? Gauchos, is that what those things are called? Um, but you would, you would pull it up, and then you're able to bring your robe up past your knees so that you have the ability to move around without being snagged on things on the ground. You're mobile. You're ready for action. You're ready to work. A similar thing is used in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, uh, put on the belt of truth. He says, gird up with the belt of truth. So tie up. Gird means to like tie up. And so when he says, do this to your mind, he says, tie up the loose ends of your mind that are hanging down, that are going to get snagged and keep you from moving around and being ready. He says, what loose things are hanging around your mind that are causing you to not be not being able to move quickly and be able to be active and run? This was also used way back in Exodus chapter 11 when um, the, the Lord tells them to eat the Passover feast ready with their loins girded up. They were to eat this meal, not lounging and laying on their sides, but instead with their robes hiked up, ready to run. So Peter says here, using this cultural practice to connect with his audience, he says, roll up your sleeves, get yourself ready in every way. So there's nothing hindering you. Hebrews chapter 12, they say he says this in, a, in maybe a running mindset, throw off every weight and everything that would entangle you and run with endurance the race that's marked out for you. What, what's tripping you or what's causing you to not run? He says that there's a problem is that we often are caught with our robes down. And we try to start running and we trip and we fall on our face because our minds are not prepared and they're not ready. Specifically for the audience in the difficult moments that they were living when everything is hard for them in the midst of trying to believe and keep their trust in Jesus. And something happens in the church or happens in the culture or happens to them. He says, you all got to be ready. The life that you're living now is you are a special stranger. And so everything that you're doing, every way that you're living, you have to be ready. 
Because this world is not your home. You're going somewhere. So hike up your robe and move toward the end. It's coming. So we get our minds ready for action. We do that by applying truth to our minds. A mind not fed well with the scriptures is a mind not ready for action, not ready to move, not ready for battle, and not ready to move away from Egypt. We gird up the loins of our minds by, by applying truth to our minds. We drench ourselves in the scriptures, in the truth of scriptures, and we gird ourselves up with truth rather than falsehood. Rather than lies. And so we drench ourselves in truth. And we throw off everything else that would entangle us. The second thing he says, being sober. So how do you set your hope fully? First, you prepare your mind. You gird up the loins of your mind with truth. And then being sober. The opposite of being sober is being drunk or intoxicated. And Peter says this is a problem is that we often are so numbed by the things of the world that we do not have clear thinking to sit on truth. We're often dulled and numb and drunk with the things of the world. And Peter is telling his audience, prepare your minds, have clear minds, Don't mess around in the things of the world that would distract your attention from the truth. The truth. Even the purpose of the letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, Peter reminds them, my goal, my purpose in writing to you is that you would stand firm in all the grace of God. That you would have sober thinking in the truth of the grace of God. This is a quote from Piper about this passage. He says, sex, of course, is not the only drug that intoxicates and numbs the mind to spiritual reality. The same can be true of money and career and power and romance novels and soap operas and TV advertisements and fishing and coin collecting and computers and rehabbing and gardening. The point is, know what numbs your mind to God and avoid it. Stay sober for the sake of full and passionate hope in God's grace. Did you hear that? The point is, when he says be sober minded, he says the point is, know what numbs your mind to God and avoid that thing or those things. Stay sober, stay clear minded, stay alert For the sake of full and passionate hope in God's grace. So brothers and sisters, we have hope that leads to holiness by remembering that our situation is sure. By setting our hope fully on that. But that only happens as we gird up our minds with truth. We wrap our minds in truth. We tie up the loose ends of our minds with truth. And then we think clearly. And we say no to the things that we often run to to numb our minds. The list could go on and on for all of us, right? The list that Piper already gave to us. We give our things to so many things just to numb ourselves to the realities of the world. And Peter says, stop, please. It's hindering your ability for hope. 
and a hopeless people runs after the things of the world and they forget that Jesus is coming back. So brothers and sisters, what is tripping up your mind and numbing your senses toward the truth? What is tripping up your mind and numbing your senses toward the truth? Because, brothers and sisters, that thing is not giving you the life that it promises. It's actually keeping you from setting your hope fully on the grace. Instead... We must focus our hearts and our minds on the things that stir our affections for God. What what stirs your heart up and your mind up to love God more than anything else and love his people? Brothers and sisters, run after those things. Focus on those things. What stirs your affection for God? The word of God, the people of God, the music of God, the beauty of God. What diminishes your affection for God? The music that you listen to, the food that you eat, the sleep that you're not getting or you are getting, the friends that you hang out with, the apps that you're on on your phone. What is diminishing your affection for God? And everything is either growing your affection or it's diminishing your affection for God because he is the end of all things. And so there's nothing benign in our lives. They're either growing or they're diminishing. And let me admonish you, run after the things that will grow your affection for God. So to have hope that leads to holiness, we must remember that our situation is sure. He is coming back for you. He is coming. He's bringing salvation. And number two, we must remember that our sonship is secure. Look at verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. To have hope that leads to holiness, we must remember our sonship is secure. He starts out here, he says, as obedient children. As obedient children, just like obedient children, Be obedient. And he puts a thing right here in the middle. He says, not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but instead being holy like the holy one who called you. Be holy in all your conduct. So when we remember that our sonship is secure, it causes us to see our father and remember his expectations on us. So where do we learn that God is our father in first Peter? Well, look at first Peter chapter one, verse two. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter is saying you are special strangers because of the foreknowledge of God, the father. God, the father, the good father. And then how did he become your father? Well, look at verse three. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He caused us to be born again 
how did he become your father? Well, he birthed you again. He caused you to become alive again. And you used to be sons of the prince of the world, sons of destruction, sons of evil, sons of disobedience. But now you become sons of light, sons of the father. And now you live a new way. Brothers and sisters, remember that your sonship is secure. If God is your father, he gave you birth. He will not let you go. If God is your father, he will not let you go. Would God abandon his children that he gave birth through his spirit? Look at verse 15. It says, but as he who called you is holy. So that phrase right there in Greek, I think a better way that it comes out is, but as the holy one called you. The one who is holy called you. So who called you? The holy one. He called you. He gave you birth. He brought you forth. And that's your father. The holy one. It's not just he who is holy. He is the holy one. Last night I was telling Hazel goodnight. Um. And she wanted to snuggle with mom first, and then she wanted to snuggle with dad. She said, Dad, will you come snuggle with me for a minute? So I said, sure, of course. And while there, she said, Dad, you are so strong. I said, yeah, I know. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. (laughs) She said, Dad, you are so strong, but I am not very strong. I said, Hazel, you are so strong, and you're learning to be strong. And she said, I'm not strong enough to lift up a house, because if I lifted up a house, it would fall on me and I would die. And you would not want to see me dead, so I'm not that strong. I said, Hazel, you are strong. And she said, but dad, I want to be strong. I want to be strong just like you are strong. And so now as children, we get to be holy like our father. We look at the holy one. We say, father, I want to be like you. I see you and I'm amazed by you, your strength and your perfection and your holiness and your righteousness. And God, I want to be like you in every way. We remember our sonship is secure. and We say, God, can I, I want to be like you. And God says, look at my son, follow your elder brother and be like him. And then you can be like me. Brothers and sisters, remember your sonship is sure because Jesus Or because God gave you birth. He is your father. He is the holy one. And then the second command of first Peter comes in here. The first command was what? Set your hope fully. The second command of first Peter is. Be holy in all your conduct. Be holy in all your conduct. It's it's a command here to. Peter's audience. It's an expectation of the sons and daughters of the Holy One. It makes sense, right? If your father is holy, then the son should be holy. Like father, like son. So first, set your hope. And hope leads to holiness. But we must remember that our sonship is secure. But there's a problem. Brothers and sisters, we are forgetful about our father and our former ignorance. 
Peter warns them here. He says, do not be conformed. Not being conformed. It's not really a command. It's, it's another way of saying like uh, preparing your minds or being sober. He says, being not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, be holy in all your conduct. So the command is be holy in all your conduct. And he's saying the way to be holy in all your conduct is by remembering not to give in to the passions of your former ignorance when you didn't have a father. But now you do. So don't go back to that thing. We forget our father and we conform to former ignorance and passions. I think this is connected back to verse 13. The things that numb our minds and catch us off guard because we're not ready. It's the things that used to get us in our former ignorance. When we didn't know the truth about God. We didn't know the truth about Jesus. You'll also notice here, there's a lot going on about the mind, isn't there? You see that in verse 13? Look at verse 13, everybody. It says, preparing your minds, being sober Minded. And then in verse 14, it says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Where does ignorance take place? In the mind. He said you used to not be able to have the thoughts that you do now, the the thinking, the truth that you do now. But that was then. This is now. You have the truth. Remember, I just told you about that in verses 10 through 12. It's amazing. It's from God. The prophets longed to know what it was and they were preparing it for you. And then the preachers came and they preached it to you and the angels longed to look into it. You have the truth. Now, why are you wandering back toward your former ignorance? The word there is the passions. The, another way to translate that would be do not be conformed to the evil urges of your former ignorance. The passions, the lusts, the desires. He says, watch out for those things. And the way to combat those is by remembering to set your hope and to remember who your father is. Look at 2 verse 1. First Peter 2 verse 1, he says, put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. That's former ignorance. 2 verse 11 He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Former ignorance, passions, lusts, evil urges. In chapter four, verse six, he gives us kind of a laundry list here of what these passions and lusts look like. In verse three of chapter four, he says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's what you used to do when you didn't know the truth. Do not conform any longer. Not being conformed any longer. Instead, being holy in your conduct. Because the Holy One called you. So to have hope that leads to holiness, we must remember our sonship is secure. And we must not conform to the patterns of our former ignorance. Romans 12, 2 also talks about that. It says, do not be conformed 
any longer to the pattern of the world, but being transformed in your what? In your minds. And what does he appeal to there in Romans 12 verse 1? He says, by the mercy of God, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. The mercy of God is that you deserve damnation and hell and utter separation from God, but he has given you life through the blood of Jesus. That is the mercy of God that all people have been separated and, and, and cast away from God in the same way. And all people are brought into God's favor in the same way through the blood and righteousness of Jesus. And Peter or Paul appeals to the mercy of God for people to be transformed in their thinking. Galatians 5, 17 You can write that one down as well. He says the passions of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. They're at war with one another. And then he gives another nasty laundry list of things that are just growing inside of our flesh. Now the works of the flesh, the passions of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not being conformed to the the passions of your former ignorance Be holy like your father is holy. So what former passions are you battling against right now? What passions are are fighting, waging war against your soul that you need to step up to and, and be reminded that God is your father and you no longer have to be a slave to those former things? You're redeemed. You're made new. You no longer are owned by the slave master of sin. Now you have the slave master of righteousness. And he is a good slave master. And Jesus loves you. And he, he, he died for you. And he gave his life that you might live. No longer for yourself, but for him. The way to fight your former passions is with the hope of the gospel. Remembering that God is your father is gospel hope. He gave you birth through the blood of Jesus. That is gospel hope. Remember that God is your father. Be holy in all your conduct. That's heavy, isn't it? Be holy in all your conduct. Oh, Lord, help us. What? Great expectations you have of your children. So to have hope that leads to holiness, we first set our hope fully by remembering that our situation is sure. We remember our sonship is secure. And thirdly, to have hope that leads to holiness, we must remember our sanctification is sealed. This might be my favorite point for this morning. Look at verse 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The expectations of the father on his children are huge. Be holy as I am holy. 
you shall be holy as I am holy. We often hear this call, right? Be holy, be holy, be holy. We can feel a weight on us, some kind of like, I, I, I can't do that. Like five seconds out of, after I got out of bed this morning, I already failed at that command to be holy in my conduct. And then at breakfast, and then I got mad at my car, and then I came to church, and then I'm still struggling to live out this holiness that is being demanded of me. And then two things happen in the flesh. We either choose legalism and we say, I'm going to try harder. I can do this. I know what I can do. I'll try harder and I'll make a checklist of every good thing I can do. And I will beat everyone else at being the holiest. Or we can say it's too hard. And I'm already saved anyway. And so I don't like legalism. So we lean toward what's called licentiousness. Say it doesn't really matter all that much. I'm not going to really try at all. We fall into one of these two ditches. When the command be holy comes over us. We give up or we try to do it on our own. We try and we try and we try. (coughs) But brothers and sisters, true holiness in our conduct comes from true hope. And remembering that God is the one who is making you holy. You're never made holy by your conduct. You're to be holy in your conduct. Your conduct doesn't make you holy. Guess what makes you holy? Let's look back at verse 2 of 1 Peter. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. God knows He's going to refine us through our obedience to Jesus. As he commit, continues to teach us about obedience to Jesus, he's going to refine us to show us our shortcomings. And then he has already sanctified those who are in Christ by the sprinkling of his blood. We remember that God is the one who is making you holy and he has set up all the means for it to make you holy. And if the Holy One gives you birth, what will you be like? You'll be like your father. But there's a problem here too, isn't there? We often forget the expectations and the promise of our father. That would be licentiousness. We forget God is calling us to a holy life. And we lower our aim towards something else. See, the aim to be holy is the right aim for believers. We must have our aim on God, the Holy One. And it's a right aim to have our eyes at. But we often lower our aim. We forget the expectation of our Father. We say, God's not that holy. Or I'm not that sinful. And then we begin to look at everything else. And we're right back to having ungirded minds and drunk thoughts. We're numb. And then we forget the promise of our Father. Look there again in verse 16. It says, you shall be holy as I am holy. God is more committed to our holiness than we are, brothers and sisters. So much so, listen to this. He says, you shall be holy. And in that, he's both giving a command and a promise at the same time. Do you see this? Jesus, you shall be holy. And that's good news for you, right? 
Because if God says, Jesus, you shall be holy, guess what? He always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And Richard, you shall be holy because you're a child of God and God will make you holy. He's doing that work. Samuel Nelson, God will make you holy. You shall be holy. And so it's a command. Be holy, brothers and sisters. And it's a promise. Grace, you shall be holy. Nolan. You shall be holy. Anybody else just feel the plague of sin when you wake up in the morning? You're like, I, I, don't, I can't do this. There's no way I'm going to win the battles that are before me today. And if you have an incorrect view of the weight of you shall be holy, you better be holy. You better be holy. And you forget that God's the one saying you will be holy and I'm going to see to it. Christian, Christian Casebolt and Christian everybody else, take so much heart in these words that you shall be holy. If you are plagued by sin and your flesh and you keep running off the path, if you've been bought by the blood of Christ and God is your father, you will and you shall be holy. And it's not just you. It's not just Josie. It's not just Theo. It's not just Marie. It's not just Elena. It's not just Vicky. It's not just me. When he writes this, he's saying, y'all shall be holy. And that's good news too, right? Y'all, Central Baptist Church, y'all shall be holy people as your Father is holy. And y'all should set y'all's hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to y'all. And y'all should not be conformed to the patterns of your former ignorance. But instead, y'all shall be holy like the one who called you is the holy one. Because Christ ransomed y'all. Not just you and not just you, not just you, but us. We, y'all, youans, us together. And this is not an individual race to the end. This is an us together race that we shall be Holy, and we shall see God, and He will do everything necessary to take care of it if we keep our hope set on Him. And if we remember that our sanctification is sealed. So, what causes you to forget that God is more devoted to your holiness than you are? What causes you to wake up in the morning and stretch and say, All right, Jesus, thanks for saving me. I've got it today. I am committed to my holiness and I've got it. And then you forgot to gird up your robe and you fall flat on your face. And then you spiral into a a mind numbing day of experiencing food and social media and thoughts about what could or couldn't have been or where you want to go or what you want to do or what you wish was different. And before long, you haven't thought about God for hours and hours and you're just tumbling down the hill with your robe still around your ankles and your mind drunk on the things of the world. Peter says, but there's good news. The truth is true and you get to set your hope fully on it. Just brothers and sisters, get your minds ready. Set your affections on God. 
remember that your sonship is secure. And remember that your sanctification is sealed. And there's good news here at the end to remind us that Jesus was the always ready one. I, I, I wish we could like imagine this, but I wonder if Jesus like never had his robe around his ankles, right? If Jesus was just always girded up when he was on earth. And they're like, why is this dude always girded up? He's like, because I'm going to write first Peter later. And that's what I want you to remember, especially you, Peter. Jesus, the always ready one. Jesus never had a moment of drunkenness in his mind. He was always clear in his thoughts. He always had it completely set on clear truth. The true son of God was perfectly obedient to his father. And he had his hope set fully. Hebrews 12, 2, right? Run with endurance the race with our eyes set on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the scorn and the shame, and he went to the cross. Follow Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, with what set before him? The joy. That was his hope, right? He knew what was coming. He could see the other end of the mountain range. 11-year-old Joseph could not see more than 10 feet in front of him. Jesus could see through the cross all the way to glory. And it was a joy for him. So what do we get to do? We get to look to Jesus. We get to watch him, study him, know him, love him. There at the very bottom of your notes, I put just three little things there to try to bring it down as practically as I can. We, we often at Central, we talk about head, heart, hands, right? Head, truth. So the truth today is that Jesus is coming back and he's bringing grace to his people. Whether you like it or not, it's happening. It's one of the only absolute things in our entire world. Jesus is coming back and he will bring salvation for his people. That's the truth. Heart. This is where our affection happens. Our longings come from. And the heart here is hope. A heart that gets to hope toward that end. Jesus coming back. And so I'm going to put all my eggs, all my investments, all myself in one basket that he is coming. And so I'm going to think like that. I'm going to create a schedule like that. I'm going to use my money like that. I'm going to use my sleeping like that. I'm going to use my food like that. Jesus is coming back. And so when we say YOLO, you only live once, we think, wow, Jesus is coming back and all my hope is in that basket. And I only get one opportunity to hope in him. And so we make the most of that. We don't say eat to live, whatever, like eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. No, we hoist up our robes and we run after Jesus. And that's the hands, right? The holy conduct. Truth motivates a heart toward affection and hope in God. And then the outcome of that is holy conduct, holy living. Does that make sense? Can you see that happening? But if you go backwards, if you're like, all right, I'm going to be really holy today. And then you're like, try to stir up some kind of hope in your heart. Doesn't work backwards. It only works one way. It has to start with truth. Set your minds on things above where Christ is then your hope is set on what is coming for you. And then the outflow of that is hands that live out a holy life. 
Which really just, if you boil it all down, it's love God and love others. That's a holy life. If you want to live a holy life in Christ Jesus, you love God completely and fully. And you love other people just like Jesus loved you. Church, we are journeying. And where we are going matters. How we are journeying matters. Why we are on the journey matters. And we are not individual people waiting for the end. We are a community sojourning together. Not sitting back passively. No, we have our minds ready and our hearts engaged. We know the end of the story. And we know that the source, the scriptures, is reliable. And so, brothers and sisters, we get to sing Together, all I have is Christ. And all I need is Christ. So let me pray for us and then we'll sing together. Father, we're so thankful for your kindness to us. Renew our hearts and our minds with the gospel this morning. If there's anyone that has not trusted you, has not repented from their sin, if you are not their father, Lord, I pray that today that you would convict them of their sin and their unrighteousness and that they would for the first time see Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the promise keeper, the promised one. And that they would turn to him. Lord, that you'd give them new life and and birth into this living hope and that they would join in on this hopeful journey. We love you, Lord. We're so thankful for your kindness to us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.